Hello, and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that came in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone, and with me is my co-host, Rob Lamorgis. Hello, everybody. And today is the fifth and final installment in our series about the films that followed after Tim Burton's Batman. But fear not, we are already hard at work on our next series, Get Me Another Star Wars, coming to a galaxy near you in just a few short weeks. But before we that, we need to close out this cycle of films, and we begin today with the third and fourth Batman movies, both from director Joel Schumacher. So Rob, what are your thoughts on Batman Forever and Batman and Robin? Well, it's very interesting when you look at it in relation to Batman and Batman Returns. And in many ways, the entire purpose of this is to see what what Batman kicked off, how that ball rolled downhill. Totally. When we looked at Batman Returns, we noticed that Tim Burton had made a strikingly different film than the original Batman. It did very well, but not as well as Warner Brothers was hoping. And so they decided to go in a different direction for these two movies. And I think there is some of Joel Schumacher's personality, clearly. These are not cold films at all. Clearly. But... Looking at it through the lens of what did the filmmaker and the studio think made the original Batman so successful? Because that's what they're pushing in these two movies. Uh, definitely in, in Batman Forever, it opens with um, a big villain. Yeah. Two-Face is already robbing a bank and you have Batman coming in to save the day. So there's none of this, uh, oh, we're going to take a whole act to get... Yeah. The, uh, explain the villain's backstory and, and get, get them together with Batman. It is, oh, you want Batman fighting a villain? We're going to give you Batman fighting a villain. Don't worry. Here it is. Yeah, and there's no origin for Two-Face. I mean, they do it kind of in flashback, but you are already thick in the middle of the action from, from the get-go. I mean, what, what I found hysterical for... Batman Forever is that literally one of the first things on screen is the uh, the credits open with a card, a Tim Burton production. And while that was, of course, contractually so, I can't imagine any film being less of a Tim Burton film than Batman Forever, except for maybe Batman and Robin. Um, you know, it's just, it's clear that Warner Brothers wanted a more family-friendly vision of Batman. The truth is, I'm not entirely sure that they got it. Um, it's It's certainly a... It's certainly a brighter vision of Batman in terms of it's it's literally brighter. But it you know there's some there's some odd uh, you know there's some odd slightly fetishy things in 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 these two movies that are different from the slightly odd fetishy things of 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 Batman and Batman Returns. And you had mentioned the uh, the the movie is brighter. It it still does have the darker picture when appropriate for Batman, especially at night. But mm -hmm. even from that opening title sequence for Batman forever, there's already color being injected. Yeah. Where you see bright colors as the credits are happening. You also, um, then you open up out of the credits where clearly another thing they thought people loved about Batman were the gadgets. Yeah. And you open up with a lot of close-ups that are, um, I think you could say male gaze, just in the sense of the male gaze zooming in on a particular detail and somewhat fetishizing it. Um, obviously, that's mostly talked about in relation to 
uh, creating women as sex objects. But actually, I think it is also a broader way that men sometimes look at the world, which is you zoom in on the detail and you go very, very small and you lose the bigger picture in order to study something deeper. No, I think Um, you're right. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And you, you get those close ups of Batman's tools and the Batmobile and Batman and things are happening kind of in these these disjointed ways of where there's just giving you hits of you want this you want to you want that. Well, we got it. It strikes me as as sort of the Batman version of Rambo prepping his weapons in in, in any <laughs> yeah. Rambo movie where you have you know he he takes the knife and he 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 sharpens it he loads the, the the giant gun and and there's that that extreme detail on the the mechanics of the the actual the actual weapons that that are being used that is I think you're right I think it is a, it is a kind of male gaze in the broader sense of that term. Um, you know, I just, I, I look at, it, it's funny, if, if, if these two movies did not have the continuity of Michael Gow as Alfred and Pat Hingle as Commissioner Gordon, they would feel completely disconnected from the, the Tim Burton Batman movies. It wouldn't even feel like the same universe. It's, it would be, you know, there, there's as much in common with, with those, except, except with those two castings, as, you know, you get from, say, The Dark Knight, the Christopher Nolan's. Uh, vision of Batman or the more recent uh, uh, Matt Reeves, the Batman. Uh, you know, they're all very, very different visions of, of this character. Yeah. And even when they are trying to take elements from Batman, they wind up getting in a different tone and a different light. So, for instance, uh, Batman Forever, what Nicole Kidman plays Dr. Chase Meridian. Split down the center like a meridian. And uh, when Batman first meets her, he also says that he has read her work. He's familiar. And this is very clearly an echo of Vicki Vale. Sure. From Tim Burton's Batman. Although their relationship could not be more different than Bruce and Vicki and Batman and Vicki in the first one. This one, she seems much more um, chasing after Batman. Rob, she is horny for Batman. And it is, uh, yeah, she is Batman's Pepe Le Pew. And it (laughs) is, um, and so you don't have the same balance where Bruce and Vicky in that first movie almost had a little bit of that, um, you know, the Howard Hawks, the His Girl Friday a little bit. Not, Not super snappy in the dialogue. Not to the degree of The Shadow, where you get even more of that kind of you know, the, the, with Alec Baldwin and, and, and Penelope Ann Miller is very, very much in that Howard Hawks kind of tradition. Yeah. But, but it's, yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, you know, it's that way. Whereas in this one, it, it feels more like she's coming for Batman. She's coming for Bruce and he has interest, but it is, um, it just doesn't feel quite as equal. Uh, and, and they don't feel quite like equals uh, because of that, I think. Yeah, it's 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 a curious uh, it's a curious role. I mean, it was it was certainly one of the big uh, it was one of big Nicole Kidman hits, you know, uh, as she as she as her profile raised. It, it's the casting of this movie is very interesting. Obviously, Michael Keaton did not return to play Batman. Uh, he was originally going to, but uh, decided somewhere in the pre-production process that it was not his his bag. Um, 
And apparently they looked at all sorts of actors. Uh, they wanted to go a little younger. Uh, Ethan Hawke was apparently approached, but turned down the role. Uh, and then Val Kilmer was cast on the strength of his performance in Tombstone, which is admittedly a fantastic uh, role in a fantastic movie. Sure thing, Huckleberry. <laughs> I'll be a Huckleberry. Um, I admit I like both of the 1994 Wyatt Earp movies. I think both Tombstone and the Kevin Costner Wyatt Earp are both really good, very different. I know that may be unfashionable to say, but I like them both. Um, Tommy Lee Jones takes over the role of Harvey Dent. Uh, they did not bring back Billy D. Williams, which is is sad, um, you know, because uh, Billy D. is great, and I would love to see Billy D.'s uh, Two-Face. Um, yeah, they had set him up as Harvey Dent in Tim Burton's Batman, and, uh, you know, he did not appear in Batman Returns, so maybe they felt that they could just kind of... Well, heck, I mean, at that point, you're recasting Bruce Wayne, so yeah, I guess re- it, all bets are off. Yeah, there is there is a comic series running now called Batman 89, which, which um, picks up from the two Tim Burton films where they do uh, have... The, the Billy D. Williams uh, Harvey Dent transform into Two Face, and uh, I'm, I'm eager to check it out um, in the in the, in the future. Uh, now, for the Riddler, obviously, in some ways, Robin Williams had been the long discussed choice. He was kind of, you know, he was the obvious choice to many in the same way that Devito was kind of the 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 person you always assumed was going to be the Penguin. Oh, if they're doing the Penguin, it'll be Devito. If they're doing the Riddler, it'll be Robin Williams. But instead, they went with the newly hot Jim Carrey, who is just coming off Ace Ventura and The Mask at the time. And uh, you know, he he certainly was again part of that. Uh, you know, this was a successful movie. It did better than Batman Returns. It didn't do quite as well as, as the first one, but it, it was a big hit in the summer of 95. But what I what I found super interesting about Jim Carrey in this movie is that while it is a younger Jim Carrey when he's closer to Ace Ventura, he's uh, closer to The Mask. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is pre-Man on the Moon. Yeah. But... I I really think when you get into the third act when he is full on Riddler, mm-hmm. but the but the changes happen. It's not when he first gets there. I do think that there is a certain kind of uh I just think you can see more depth there where yeah. he's drawing on stuff that you're going to see more of from him later. And um I like it. I also love that one. This is one of the one of the it's a very, very short segment that I do love in this movie, which is early when he uh, turns into the Riddler, when they have the uh, Flaming Lips song playing. Oh, yeah. Travel into to Edward Nigma's apartment as he's kind of just tinkering, but also a bit crazy. And that apartment is not up to code. I'm just going to say that there's there's no (laughs) it follows no no logical lines. That is that I, I do. I think. You know, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, this version of Batman is not the kind that necessarily resonates with me, but that doesn't mean it's not valid. I think one of the things that's so interesting about Batman is, as a character, he is perhaps the most flexible uh, American superhero in terms of the uh, the, the breadth of, of the types of interpretations that, that are possible and still maintain the core of the character if you go you know if you go too far in one direction or another with superman you go you make too dark of a superman it's not superman anymore um but batman there's there's a lot of latitude and uh i do like his the riddler i'll be honest the the performance in this movie that makes me that is a a little off-putting to me is actually tommy lee jones as two-face 
Um, because Tommy Lee Jones is great in straight-laced roles like The Fugitive, in Men in Black, but here it feels like he's trying to go further over the top than Jim Carrey, and that feels like a fool's errand. Don't try and out Jim Carrey, Jim Carrey. Like, that is just a mistake. And, uh, yeah, and just the, the, the Tommy Lee Jones thing is, is really kind of, whoa, that is a, it's a lot. Well, and I do wonder, because um, the tone of this whole thing is shifted quite a bit. Yeah. Um, intentionally so. Yes. Um, th- this clearly to me is going, I-, I don't know if you would say Batman Forever is full camp. I think by the time you get to Batman and Robin, it may have gotten there. And it's it seems intentional. Um, Schumacher is even um, dutching angles quite yeah. a bit in the shots where he is shooting with the camera not level so that it's tilted in, in a style that was obviously very, very connected with Batman 66, the television series. That was Dutch Angle City, Batman 60. Anytime a villain was on screen, <laughs> the camera was tilted. And I, it's funny, I love the Batman 66 television series. Um, you know, I, I, I watched it with a kid, as a kid, I, re, I have revisited it more recently. And, it, and it's just, it's got a charm that 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 the, the Schumacher Batman movies don't don't quite have but they were clearly going for I feel like I feel like the 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 Schumacher Batman films were really a big budget 90s adaptation of the Batman television series with all that goes with that more so than uh, uh going back to the original comics it it feels like that was that was their their touchstone for these films Yes, and I think as part of that, and look, some of this is coming off of Batman Returns where you're putting more characters into the film. Yeah. For whatever reason in Batman Returns, I think part of it is Max Shrek is someone who just doesn't even get explained. Right. Uh, Batman's already explained. So you're really only doing two kind of origins. The Penguin is kind of the prologue and then Catwoman's within the context, the body of the film. Right. So that her origin is a little more like Darkman in that way, where it's technically an origin story, but it's within the context of the actual main story, so it's not a step out. Right. By the time you get to Batman Forever and then really into Batman um, and Robin, it feels like so many elements are getting added because the movies are getting bigger and bigger as you go. It creates issues of do you have enough time for everything and are you shortchanging stuff? And it's that's just hard to work with. Yeah. Um, a couple. Of, there's another character that's introduced in, in Batman Forever that we have not talked about. Uh, it is the first uh, appearance in the, the modern Batman movies of Robin, played by... Uh, Chris O'Donnell, and apparently every young actor in Hollywood was looked at for Robin, uh, from apparently Ewan McGregor, Jude Law, Mark Wahlberg, Matt Damon, um, Chris, future Batman Christian Bale, uh, and eventually they went with Chris O'Donnell, and um, yeah, they give a pretty straightforward Robin origin, and you know that's uh, it's pretty much right out of the comics. Yes, and even the uh, the Grayson's circus costumes mm-hmm. are extreme. I mean, you talked about with the Phantom that being uh, one of the most um, comic accurate costumes yeah. to hit the screen. Those Grayson's costumes are fairly accurate for oh, the traditional Robin costume. Um, obviously, that changes when he gets his real Robin costume in the in uh, Batman Forever. Um, and they, uh, But they do take great pains. It does feel very 90s that he's into motorcycles for some reason. Uh, to he me. does laundry kung fu. 
Laundry Kung Fu. That's right. He doesn't, uh, and it's fun, you know, where we know, oh, he's already, he can fight. We don't need the training sequence. He's just right. there. So, you know. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it, well, I mean, there's a, yeah, it's just, it's, it's established that, that, that you don't have to train this, this kid up and he can, he can, he can, you know, hold his own in a fight, uh, as he does in the fight with the Dayglow, the, the Dayglow gangs. There's the gangs with Dayglow face paint and glow sticks for weapons. Uh, to me, you know, we could talk about nipples on the Batsuit all day, but there's nothing more like Schumacher Batman than uh, Dayglow face painted gangs with glow stick weapons. Uh, that is a whole other Gotham City from from the one that Tim Burton presented. And, the, I mean, that stuff looks cool to me. I mean, it is vastly different, but I think it's super visually striking. Um, it certainly it's is. It's just the... Th yeah, and um, it's funny looking at Batman Forever and Batman and Robin really as, as almost uh, part one and part two yeah. of, of a of a two film Batman cycle. Yeah. Unlike Burton, when Burton made, went from Batman to Batman returns, it felt like there was a, a big shift in a different direction. Um, I, I happen to like that direction. Yeah. Um, with Batman forever to Batman and Robin, it feels like Batman and Robin is just going the same way that Batman forever did. It's just really putting the pedal to the metal and, <laughs> flooring it right but it is it is progressing from from a point you can definitely see this sort of through line from batman forever to to batman and robin in the same way that you go from in the bond series you go from the spy who loved me to moonraker feel very much of a piece you know that but but moonraker is you know way more um you know, over the top than than the Spy Who Loved Me. So it's 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 something you see commonly in movies where it's like, oh, this is successful, and we're going to we're gonna now we're gonna go up to to a hundred miles an hour and push the same thing. So it's it's not a change; it's a progression. Um, we talked about the humor before in Batman and how it was different from kind of the '80s action humor, mm -hmm. and it it wasn't doing the one-liner thing. Um, what I find interesting is when you look at Batman Forever they do kind of go into some of that kind of humor yeah. where you do have, um, I think when, uh, what, when Edward Nigma, the Riddler is born as the genius by taking the mind power of that guy, Fred, he has the, the little mind helmet where he's getting smarter and, and stealing yeah. the mental powers of someone else. And, um, when he kills him, he then, uh, says, surfs up big kahuna and kind of kicks a chair out of a window. He falls from a great height. Yes. Uh, and uh, into I then surfs up Big Kahuna because he's going into what the raging there's it's, it, there's a dam going through Wayne Tower uh, you know which is clearly some kind of power source it's I might add uh, with with that scene it really stands out we've talked a lot about the progression from practical effects to digital effects and that progression continues very very strongly here where we we really get into sort of early early CGI that the, the CGI landscapes of Gotham City you know have have a quality that feel very 90s CGI in a strong way though interestingly enough they are I think still in the look of that CGI of, or the look of the buildings they are still they're not straying that far from Batman 89's vision of Gotham no. 
that they are kind of trying to keep it in that world again. Um, so there, there are things that they, they don't want to go too far, but they want to change the things that they think are ma- giving you more of what you wanted from Batman right. 89. Yeah, it is certainly, yeah, and it's an attempt to look at, what. well, here's what people liked, and let's give more of that. I'm not sure necessarily it was successful, but well, it was it was certainly financially successful for the film when it came out. I don't think they've aged as well. Um, and as you get into Batman and Robin, again, everything gets turned up to 11. Uh, it bring, Batman and Robin brings back the whole creative team from the previous film, uh, with the exception of Val Kilmer being replaced by George Clooney uh, in the... In, uh, in the role of Bruce Wayne and Alicia Silverstone joining as Alfred's niece, Barbara Wilson, AKA Batgirl. Uh, note Alicia Silverstone, God love her. She is a, a terrific actress, but she's not plausibly English. The two villains are Arnold Schwarzenegger as Mr. Freeze and Uma Thurman as po- Poison Ivy. Note those villains goals are completely incompatible. One wants to freeze the world. One wants to cover it with plants. Those things don't work together. Why are these villains even working together? I have no idea. Yeah, to uh, to be fair, Poison Ivy's kind of tricking Mr. Freeze along. Uh, and so they actually, deep down, don't get along. Well, that's true. And and at the end, you get the impression that they're, they're forced to share a cell and winter has come at last. Oh, God. I can't believe it did that. Winter has come at last. I love the puns. See, that's the thing about Batman and Robin. Even even though it's not my favorite Batman movie, God, if I'm in a bad mood, I can just put on like the YouTube clip of all the Mister Freeze puns, and it it will bring it will bring a smile to my face. So it's you know it's got that going for it. And that's that is the further extension in Batman Forever. Surfs up Big Kahuna, very kind of Batman sixty six esque one liners. Yep. But then when you get here. You've now progressed into 80s action one-liners, I would imagine partly because they had cast Arnold Schwarzenegger. And so you do get Chill Out, What Killed the Dinosaurs, The Ice Age, That's my Party. Oh, yeah. I mean, so many good ones. And what I do find interesting is that Mr. Freeze and Schwarzenegger are probably my favorite part of Batman and Robin. He actually has an interesting story where he, he's a sympathetic uh, villain his wife uh is terminally ill and he's trying to cure the disease victor freeze is a scientist or scientist trying to cure mcgregor's syndrome is the name of the disease so he uh has his wife essentially cryogenically uh uh frozen and that's where he develops his freeze ray technology um and he what he accidentally he had an accident with his own As freezing ten, technology. In, in some ways, uh, I'll say this. Mr. Freeze, uh, for a Batman villain, is very much like a Spider-Man villain. He's a, he's, he's a good man who, who, for whom, you know, something bad, usually scientifically related, happened and now has, uh, has, gone, uh, has gone crazy and uh, is, uh, is stealing money to, to fund his research. And that, that may be why I, I enjoy him so much in this movie. I'm a giant Spider-Man fan. That's what I, one of the comics I grew up reading as a kid. Absolutely, so as I'm, did I. I'm well conditioned to like that. Um, his makeup, too. I did not remember it being this striking. Maybe it's because now it's in high def and I'm closer oh, yeah. uh, to the screen. That 4K transfer, yeah, of, of <laughs> oh, Mr. Freeze's makeup. I mean, it's it's incredible. And it 
I, I cannot explain why it's a, uh, you know, maybe it's all the, all the shimmering sparkle that's in there. Uh, it's a little ice like. <laughs> Um, there was a clear emphasis on in this movie on on selling toys, and even the, the filmmakers admit it in some of the the behind the scenes stuff. And and to that end, you know, Batgirl, Batgirl's on screen for less than thirty minutes of the movie, and in that there are two distinct Batgirl costumes, you know, which you could make different action figures from. Uh, I find it so interesting that Batgirl, they, they you know, is traditionally. Batgirl is the daughter of police commissioner uh, Gordon. Barbara Gordon is 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 traditionally Batgirl in the comics and in the TV series. And here they they change that to make it Alfred's niece, um, who's British. But they then cast Alicia Silverstone, and I I don't understand anything, Rob. I don't understand anything. I, I'm I'm just a simple man, you know, trying to. Uh, Trying to make my way in the universe, uh, and, and these, are, these are not the droids you're looking for, Chris. <laughs> Little tie in there. Little tie in for our next up. series. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I will say I I can understand the impulse if you're looking at a movie that is already you know has a lot of elements where you're explaining you have to explain Barbara, you're explaining mm. Freeze, you're explaining Poison Ivy, you're explaining Bane, you're explaining the scientist who creates Bane. Uh. Commissioner Gordon has not been much of a character in these films, but Alfred has. And so yeah. it's just kind of a very nice insta shorthand to uh, not have to explain as much to make us care. And I, so I, I get, I get it. Uh, they saved themselves some real estate there. Um, it's just, uh, you know, you look at this film and how, what, and what this series evolved into over the course of four films, it's kind of an incredible evolution from that. Remember back when we first started, we were watching that first scene of Tim Burton's Batman and the simple effectiveness that that first scene has. And now where we've gone to in the, in the journey and they went there in four movies. It's like, you know, it, it, it took the Bond series 20 movies to go from Dr. No to Die Another Day. Batman did it in four. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, and what's, it's funny again, there, you do see elements where in Batman Forever, you had a Vicky Vale-esque character, but it was mm -hmm. done very differently. In Batman and Robin, I think you have a Catwoman-esque character in Poison Ivy. Yeah, but done very differently. It's again the the mild mannered to meek woman who's yep. kind of being stepped on by men and society, violent men who then essentially kill yeah. or try to kill her. That then is the origin of her turning into the supervillain. Poison Ivy, I think, is presented much more uh, as just a straight up villain. I don't really think it's funny, even though there's an environmental message, you are not supposed to be on board with it. In the grand schemes, Poison Ivy was right. My goodness. Yes. And uh, anyway, it's just interesting. You see that impulse to have a Catwoman, but it comes out so different. Yeah, it's interesting that you, there are parallels between the first and second in the, the Burton cycle and the first and second movies in the Schumacher cycle. You know, um, you know, kind of their their shadowy reflections, you know, uh, that that Batman Forever and, and Batman and Robin are. You know, sort or bright, of bright neon reflections. Yeah, maybe bright neon is the better. Yeah, through a through a glass uh, brightly, I suppose. Uh, or uh, <laughs> you know, uh, if 1990 was the year that ushered in the first wave of movies in the post Batman era, it could be argued that 97 was the beginning of the end of that period. So, in addition to the commercial disappointment of Batman and Robin, uh, that year also saw the release of the quasi Superman inspired Steel 
movie starring Shaquille O'Neal, which also did not do great at the box office, uh, to put it mildly. Uh, And it also saw the release of the next film we're going to discuss, New Line Cinema's adaptation of Todd McFarlane's Spawn. Uh, A little bit about Spawn. In 1992, several high-profile comic book writers and artists, including Tom McFarlane, Jim Lee, and Rob Liefeld, left Marvel and formed an independent company called Image Comics uh, in an effort to have greater control over their work. And Image's effect on the comics industry was much like that of the the 90s indie film boom was to cinema or grunge was to rock. Uh, You know, it was kind of the the wave of, of, of Gen X creators kind of taking control uh, and directing it. And Image's most iconic title was Todd McFarlane's Spawn, which told the story of Al Simmons, a CIA covert operative and assassin, and after being betrayed and murdered by his superiors, Al goes to hell, where he makes a deal with the devil in order to see his wife once more. And he's sent back to Earth as a hell spawn, where he's given supernatural powers, but without much of his memory. Uh, and Spawn as a character very much in the, the same you know, kind of era as Venom and Deadpool. He is an anti-hero and honestly one of the signature comic book mo- uh, comic book characters of the 90s. Um, Michael Jai White stars in the movie and, and uh, this makes him one of the, the first black superheroes in any film. John Leguizamo plays the demonic clown. Um, Martin Sheen is a villainous CIA agent and Nicole Williamson is Spawn's mentor, uh, Cogliestro, uh, and uh, what was his last film role? Um, Spawn has a theme of resurrection that is very common in superhero films of this time. We see it in Darkman. We see it in The Crow. Uh, we see it in the Catwoman arc of Batman Returns. Uh, and the problem with Spawn is that it feels very derivative of some of these movies. You know, and, and I think that's the big issue with Spawn is that uh, it feels very derivative in general. It's interesting because, uh, full disclosure... I I read Spawn in those first few years, uh, so I, I had the issue number one. I cannot remember which which variant cover I had, so yeah, uh, but I had one of them. As did I. Oh yes, I and at the time, and I just want to talk about the comic first yeah. to get to the movie because I I think they hold interesting places as far as what they were doing. Yes, the comic, and you'd mentioned Venom. Uh, and McFarlane was very famous for his work on Spider-Man, uh, his yes. runs on Spider-Man. And I, I think Spawn as a comic book is definitely springing forth. It's it's continuous in the line of what had been going on there, Frank Miller with Dark Knight, um, and, or Dark Knight Returns is Dark Knight the, Returns, the full sure. name. Anyway, it, it, it's there's that whole movement toward doing more mature comic books. Sometimes that means the themes are more mature, which mm-hmm. I, arguably I think the the backstory for the Spawn character it's you know that's yeah. that's that's fairly mature oriented. It's not it's a step away from Uncle Ben dying, right? Sure. Um, but at the same time, there's that other impulse of does mature also mean gorier and more demons and things like that and sometimes it means both and some you know and property skew one way or another the original spawn comics though still while dark did have that comic book splash of color yeah i think when you look at the movie as you were saying it starts to draw it's trying to have a similar impulse to what the comic did it's positioning itself as being harder more mature than say tim burton's batman they're not trying to make a movie where a mom is going to take their seven-year-old it is not on the table 
seven-year-old might see it, but that they're not, and that's not, it's not a Happy Meal movie. Right. Um, but as you said, they start to draw on other film elements, and um, it just produces a, a different end result than what McFarlane did in the comic earlier. The comic was absolutely, you know, sort of one of the groundbreaking comics of the 90s. And, uh, and, and it's, I find it interesting that, you know, such a revolutionary comic uh, ends up being diluted into a film that is, I'll be honest, flat and, and, and very derivative. I, I, you know, it's not my favorite. I, you know, again, we're not here to, to necessarily run down films, but that doesn't mean we can't be honest about them. It's, it's not my favorite movie. Uh, and it's funny because it comes out of a very, very great comic. And, and I think there's representative of that is Spawn's Cape. McFarlane as an artist did things that were the way he kind of broke out of panels and you see it with with Venom you see it with Spider-Man's webbing and his work on that and in Spawn's cape is is sort of amazing on the comic book page and here in the movie it is this it is some of the worst CGI ever I mean this you want to talk about a movie that is is just does not is has CGI that is not ready for prime time Spawn is the movie to talk about some of the stuff is I, it is amazing that it was even released. Uh, the, the cape is is terrible. Uh, the, when they go to hell, the scenes in hell are. I mean, honestly, it looks like a cutscene from Doom. It is. It is uh, from the from the original video game Doom. Uh, it is. It is really. You know, again, it, it's just. It, it's. Um, it just does not hold up. Um, yeah, and and again, it's not that they weren't capable because this is the era that gave us the dinosaurs from Jurassic Park, so it's that those still do hold up, but Spawn very much does not. That said, John Leguizamo's clown makeup is amazing. Yeah, and he in general is, I think, rising to the challenge. He knows yeah. uh, again if we're referencing uh, the, the Batman '89. You know, if your measuring stick is Nicholson as the Joker. Yeah. And you are being brought in as kind of a star name to do the villain role, and you're you're trying to fill that void as a, what Violator. I think he does a great job. He is hands down my favorite part of the movie. Absolutely, yeah. I, this is a movie I genuinely, I, I will say, I don't understand the plot. I don't understand what what uh, Martin Sheen's character Jason Wynn. I don't understand what his plan is. If you plan to release the Heat Sixteen bio weapon, why would you agree to hook it up to your own heart? I don't, I don't even understand why you'd do that. Like, why would you say yes to that? It's immediately suspect. Okay, I'm, gonna, I'm going to, to the amusement of everyone, try to <laughs> run through what I think the plan was. Okay. Okay. Because I don't know what it is. So, uh, yeah, Wynn, who is the evil, uh, what, A6 director. I think yes. A6 is supposed to be a division within CIA, maybe. Or maybe oh, it's something. just A6. I don't know. Anyway, Martin Sheen, and he works for the demons. So Violator is the go-between. Yes. But he is uh, presumably working for, um, oh my goodness, the... Uh, Malbolgia. Yes, thank you. Now, he is working for them, I think, not 100% knowing exactly... They, he knows they want to take over Earth in some fashion because when they do so, they're going to give him, you know, win his own little fiefdom. Australia! <laughs> yeah. He's creating this bioweapon for them. And the bioweapon, what? At one point, the... Uh, and he kills Al Simmons. This is the death of yep. Al Simmons. Is uh, when he's getting too close to things to cover up what, that he's making. Uh, yes. What, the Heat Six. 
and Heat six. that is Heat 16 that Heat is 16 Heat 16 thank you that's when it releases the bioweapon on 8000 test subjects in i believe north korea it is north korea and, and that then the bioweapon then they harvest uh the grown virus from within the bodies and that's the one they're going to release later on potentially to get the whole world i'm just going to say um, the airport in north korea looks suspiciously like lax hmm i'm just saying it's that there's only one airport design in the entire world. Well, it's just I guess that's what it is. true. I guess yeah. that's true. Um, so in any event, I, I think that uh, it's never exactly explained as Wynn think they're... Wynn clearly doesn't think they're going to kill everyone in the world. Maybe he thinks the bioweapons engineered to only get certain people or something. Maybe he's going to hide out. I don't know. Oh, no, there's something about selling the cure. Like, oh, if people... Oh, you know, that's right. They, they're the only ones with the vaccine. The vaccine. That's right. Oh, God. It's, so it's vaccine skepticism involved in this as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Oh, I've seen the future uh, and it's spawn. Yes. But, uh, yeah, the reason then, uh, the demons, though, don't care about when and they have no intention of filling out that... Uh, their promise to him because what they really want is Al Simmons as spawn to lead the army of hell. And the way that they think they can finally get him is to have him kill win in uh, a bloodless revenge for killing him, uh, for killing Al. Thus they hook up <laughs> the device to, to win's heart so that if his heart stops beating, it will release the virus. They sell it to win as a, then no one will, will want to kill you. Uh, but of course the one blind spot there is, well, the demons do want it released. So, the demons might kill you. Um, Rob, I'm, yeah. I'm going to give you a piece of advice as a friend. If someone <laughs> asks you to hook up your heart to a series of apocalyptic biological weapons, just say no. Don't do it. Ah, uh, yes. Wow. Lucky, lucky for me, I have no heart, Chris. I'm a <laughs> heartless monster. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's not the best movie. It, it's, uh, you know, it, 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 it it feels very derivative of, of of movies that came before it. I feel like, in particular, The Crow. It, it it feels like sort of the 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 not great copy of The Crow in terms of the visual style of the film. Um, at times, it's disjointed and literally hard to see. Like I'm like literally, I don't know what I'm looking at on screen at periods. Um, there's a better Spawn. I mean, the Spawn is a terrific character and a, and a terrific comic, and there is undoubtedly a better version of Spawn possible. You know, I could see it as sort of a, a, a limited series, you know, for, for Netflix or HBO Max or that kind of, in the modern streaming era, I think Spawn would adapt very well to that format. Um, and maybe it just, it was not ready for a movie in 1997, you know, it was just not there. Well, and with, with effects now, I think it would be much, much better to do. Oh, yeah. I mean, in this movie alone, here are some of the Spawn powers, um... Some of them you can do without much without much trouble, given the technology of the time. There are others that it starts to get a little tough, where he has super strength, hard armor skin, yep, uh, glowing spikes that come out of his fists. He has healing. His belt is alive, not unlike oh. the uh, the old dagger from uh, oh the sure shadow. from the shadow. Uh, he ha he uses chain hooks like Spider Man uses webbing to kind of swing around. He does wall crawling. He has a camouflage cape where he can kind of blend into the background, uh, almost like the Predator suit. He has a sentient flying cape like Doctor Strange. Yep. The cape turns to armor for his bike, not dissimilar to shields in Shields. Batman. Uh, 
and he has big spikes that can impale a truck. Um, that's just, I, I mean, I'm sure there's more that I missed. I was just writing down there. There are a lot of cool powers. Um, and, uh, it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's tough with the, the budget they had. Yeah. And, and it was, uh, I remember seeing this movie in the movie theater and I, I honestly had not seen it since that when, when I rewatched it for, for this. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, oh, be careful watching if you, if you do watch Spawn and I don't, necessarily remember but it's 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 you know i don't want to not you know if you're interested in a movie watch it but do be careful i felt like i could have a seizure watching the closing credits like they were so so jumbled i was like oh my god i think uh i think it's it's possibly the end it is is it's it is super 90s uh the the soundtrack is very 90s it's almost again the, the crow kind of hit this sweet spot and spawn feels like sort of the derivative downstream uh, version of that in terms of the soundtrack and the look. So Spawn, when it came, it was not, again, like uh, Steel, it was not a, a, a big hit at the box office. Um, and following the disappointments of Batman and Robin and Steel and Spawn, it seemed like superhero films were starting to grow cold and the momentum for the genre that was generated by Batman was kind of running out. Uh, but before it runs out entirely... We want to talk about another film that came out just as this trend was winding down, and that is 1999's Mystery Men. Um, Mystery Men, I had never seen this movie, and it's a very interesting film. I I couldn't tell if I liked it immediately after, although the more I've thought about it, the more I really like it. Um, It tells the story of a team of lesser-known and modestly-powered superheroes who band together to rescue the powerful hero Captain Amazing and save the city from the villainous Casanova Frankenstein, which is a fantastic name. It was based on Flaming Carrot Comics by Bob Burdan, which first appeared in 1979. It was part of a wave of underground indie comics in the late 70s and 80s that paved the way for more commercially successful indie titles such as Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Crow, and Spawn, all of which we've talked about on this show. Uh, and it's ironic that this is one of the earliest of the, the indie comics, and it didn't get adapted until sort of later in this particular cycle of comic book-based movies. Well, and that makes a lot of sense to me because... And look, every series that we do isn't going to necessarily end with the comedy or parody version of the trend. But many will. And I think the reason for that, and this isn't rocket science, is that you can't make fun of something until people are familiar with it. Yeah. And so you can't you can't parody Burton's Batman in 1990 because right. it's not enough of the, the tropes aren't established well enough. You have to be deeper into a cycle to do that. Now the comic obviously was deep into a comic cycle and could already be right. doing that, but you couldn't do it in movie form until the movies had kind of run that course a little bit. Right. Absolutely. Um, the list of people in this movie is amazing and bizarre. Uh, the primary cast includes Ben Stiller, William H. Macy, Hank Azaria, Janine Garofalo, Greg Kinnear, Jeffrey Rush, Wes Studi, Lena Olin, and Paul Rubens and Kel Mitchell. But additionally, let's talk about some of the other people who pop up randomly in this movie. I'll start with Tom Waits. Oh, yes. As the most benign arms manufacturer in the history of cinema. He really is their their cue from James Bond. (laughs) Yeah. 
but like everything is non-lethal. Non-lethal and and bonkers like a child. It is like a child, a seven-year-old was sitting here telling you, I'm going to make a superhero weapon. It's a big blob of jelly. And <laughs> you just go from there. Uh, Ricky I, I mean, I love it. Oh, I love it. Too. Ricky Jay shows up in this movie, a, 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 a classic, you know, character actor and magician who I, I had the privilege to see live and and was a, a amazing show. If you ever look up some of the performances of Ricky Jay, uh, he 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 was an incredible magician. Uh, Eddie Izzard shows up, who I, I think is great. Uh, Dane Cook shows up as the waffler. The waffler, yeah. Uh, Michael Bay shows up in a cameo in this movie, and I God, I don't even know what I'd respond to that. Yeah, so Michael Bay is part of that frat boy group that uh, includes Ricky Rackman from Headbangers Ball, and yeah. uh, I yeah. guess that uh, Michael Bay was apparently good, very good friends with the director, according to the okay. internet. So okay, uh, I mean it's it's it's. Again, at first I wasn't sure how I felt about this movie, and then as I I, I, I liked it, the more it kind of sat with me. Um, it it feel you know what you want to talk about a movie that feels like a precursor to other things. This movie feels in a lot of ways like it is the prototype for movies later, like Kick Ass, like Deadpool, uh, and in general the works of James Gunn, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, Suicide Squad, The Suicide Squad. Let me be clear, James Gunn made The Suicide Squad uh, with the article The, not the articleless Suicide Squad, big difference, as well as Peacemaker, which I just finished watching, and Rob, I'll tell you, that's a delight too. Um, but it feels like that, that combination of bizarre humor and genuine pathos, uh, it feels like this movie is kind of we're seeing the beginnings of those two things kind of swirling together around a superhero concept in a way that doesn't fully develop. Like this movie doesn't a hundred percent work, but it, it feels like it lays the tracks for things that will later work really well. Yeah. And I think a lot of that stems from the story, but uh, because as you say, it's not, it's not a Mel Brooks parody of superheroes. No, it's not. It's not a Zucker Abrams Zucker Naked Gun kind of thing. It's a, a drier humor. Yeah. It, yeah. It's it's much drier. Although they do have some very very silly stuff, but it is also still trying to make you feel uh, for the characters in a way that I think in the the pure comedy parody one that you don't all they're they're not always asking you to, and so part of that is the story where. Um, what Captain Amazing is yeah. the, the the true hero for the, the city. The hero of Champion City, sponsored by a whole series of companies. Yeah, he looks like a, a NASCAR driver in his outfit. Yeah. And you get early on uh, that he is losing sponsors because he's been too successful. And he's yeah. actually put away all of the villains, um, <laughs> which is a fun commentary on uh, on superheroes in general. Yeah. And so he, he hatches a plan to get his nemesis, Casanova Frankenstein, to break him out so that he can capture him again and get interest back from the populace. But he, uh, he, it doesn't go as planned. Casanova Frankenstein winds up capturing him, which leaves our mystery men, um, who originally are a trio to start, uh, to then try and get people together because they're the only ones uh, who know that uh, Captain Amazing is his probably been kidnapped by yes. Casanova. And uh, so then they go off 
Which and leads so to the superhero... Got... Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I, I was going to say. Leads to the superhero tryout scene, which is hysterical and feels like the, the prototype of what, what is nearly the same scene in Deadpool 2. But it is dealing with, um, you know, the shoveler <laughs> played by William H. The Basie. shovel. Uh, he's his, great. His, his family and family life is in there. Yeah. You have, um, you know, the romantic subplot with uh, Mr. Furious Oh, yeah. uh, and the and Claire Falani at the uh, at the diner, and you have various uh, and what the the Blue Raja with, his, with mom his mom and wanting to wanting to be so, and then how they're thought of by the city, and you're dealing with a, a superhero who is corrupt uh, and uh, kind of a jerk, and yeah. but but giving that uh, the fake uh, smile to the public, so it's dealing with a lot of stuff that are critiques of the genre in general but having fun with it and yet at the same time trying to actually still make you emotionally invested in it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a tightrope act. It's a tightrope act. I'm not sure this movie quite nails it, but I feel like it's, it's, it's the prototype for things to come. It, it, it really is looking, you know, it's, it's sort of bending the curve down the road to, to where uh, future attempts would sort of get that, that tightrope act a lot better um it's it, again not to say this movie isn't good it's worth checking out it's very unusual um it's it's just a terribly odd film but it's 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 know that it, it it kind of feels like the prototype and it's interesting to see it in that through that lens um it's probably a little long mm-hmm. you know a yep. little sluggish like it, it feels like it needs to be a little lighter on its feet and it's not um but but it's it's a really interesting movie. I had never seen it before. Yeah, I, I saw it back in the day. I was very excited for it. Um, but looking at it in the context of all of the uh, all, all of the series of films, you do start to see certain tropes and things that are in all of them. Uh, the bowler, uh, her bowling ball, it contains the skull of her dead father, from from whom she kind of gets her power, her bowling it's amazing. powers. And she talks uh, to the skull. Uh, We never hear it, unlike in The Phantom. But there is that familial connection. um, And you have um, family issues. You have um, Mr. Furious does certainly feel like uh, the commentary on superhero rage at times. uh, That that his only power is he can get angry. uh, And it is often ineffective and (laughs) hilarious. Um, So it's playing with a lot of stuff. But the thing where it departs from this whole series, besides being, you know, more of a flat out comedy, as opposed to where the shadow was having fun with thing with the uh, tropes and and, and kind of giving you that knowing wink and a nod, but being mostly straight. Uh, This one is not being mostly straight. But uh, this is the first team movie. It was all solo up until this point. Yeah. And um, you just don't... And also, because of that, you really don't get origin stories. Yeah. Yeah, you're right, because it would be... And it's interesting, because you you would... You know, I mean, obviously, this movie came out. It was not a big hit, and that was the end of superhero movies for forever. Like, there would basically be no more. I'm just kidding. There were obviously a news cycle. That was that was a joke, uh, and and the news cycle would arise, um, you know, kind of beginning right around this time because uh, a year before Mystery Men, you had a, another movie, uh, Blade, 
which starring Wesley Snipes, which was the canary in the coal mine for this new era of superhero films that was just on the horizon. It was it was the first theatrically released superhero feature film based on a Marvel comic since 1986's Howard the Duck, which we mentioned back in episode one as one of the horniest movies of all time. Uh, and Blade was a, a significant hit in 1998, and it paved the way for the Marvel films of the 21st century, including... Uh, X-Men, which would come out uh, only a year after Mystery Men in 2000. So there's definitely, there's these two eras of superhero filmmaking, which kind of overlap a little bit in the late 90s, early aughts. And, uh, you know, yeah, you ha- it, Mystery Men was, was sort of the beginning of the team-based film, which obviously X-Men would do even, would base their whole, you know, the whole concept of X-Men is that they are, they are a team of heroes. And then if I'm going to direct the snake to start eating its own tail... The beginning of this cycle, where we were transitioning from 80s into the 90s films, one of the directors who did that was Sam Raimi with Darkman, the same one who's going to sweep away the 90s era of superhero filmmaking and usher us into the grand uh, new era, which in many ways has never ended uh, still to this day, when he does Spider-Man. And it's funny, I think people will look at a guy like Wes Craven because he worked in a single genre and yep. go, oh, look, he he helped define 70s uh, horror, 80s horror, 80s and horror, 90s, 90s horror. horror. I don't think that people think of Raimi that way, but if you look at the work and what resulted yeah. from that work, I kind of think he is that guy. Now, I get it. Um, you know, Evil Dead in the 80s is its own big thing. Darkman wasn't as Big butts. I'm going to say it so we can have this soundbite. Sam Raimi is the Wes Craven of superhero movies, period. Put that on the poster, um, you know, because you, and, and we'll see what he does with Doctor Strange. He's, he's directing Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, which I am uh, very excited to see and looks terrific. Yeah, uh, as you can tell. Big, big Raimi fans here. Oh, so, absolutely. Uh, we're, we're all big, oh, yeah. big Raimi fans here at Get Me Another. Uh, there's no question. Um, so yeah, Blade is is right around this time. And Blade, uh, you know, like I said, is set the table for X-Men and then Spider-Man. And I mean, there's a direct line all the way to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, of which kind of dominates cinema releases of, of the modern era. I mean, that, that brings us right up to today. Um, so as we bring this set of episodes to a close, uh, Rob, I want to ask you, what have we learned as we've 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 kind of charted to, tried to chart the the course of films that followed in the wake of Batman, what what lessons can we take? Well, with this one specifically, because so much of it was almost all it may be all studio based. Not yeah. every other not every other yes. trend that we look at is going to all be mainstream studio based. Yes, what and I that's going to be very it, interesting. I, yes, <laughs> including in the next one. Yes, we, indeed. Uh, what I. <laughs> Boy, and that's that's where things get weird, um, and I love it. The uh, but when you're doing the mainstream studio, I think there is this thought that things get derivative, and you're just you are just carbon copying things. Yeah. What this particular series and looking at all these films in a row taught me is that even when you think they're trying to do that, it's impossible. 
Yeah. Uh, it's the, that old cliche of, uh, oh, every story's been done. What makes it different? It, what makes it different is that you are a unique individual and you are telling that story. Yeah. And so by virtue of that, it's just going to come out differently. And I would say that this lesson, uh, even in movies that were more directly trying to take uh, elements from Tim Burton's Batman and then and then the other successful films that came after it, you just cannot help but not be the thing that you yeah. are uh, taking from. Yeah, and and I what uh, what I found amazing is how much of how many of these films really do hold up and are genuinely entertaining uh, to this day. I mean, you know, they're, they're, we we've. You know, we talked, uh, God, I mean, going back to the first episode, Dick Tracy is still entertaining. Darkman, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Rocketeer. Uh, I, I still recommend the Flash series uh, to anybody. Uh, uh, the Crow, The Shadow, The Phantom are, are all still entertaining movies, uh, even, even to this day. And some of them play better now than when they were first released. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been a, it's been a, a wild ride. I've really enjoyed it. And... Uh, you know that that actually brings us to the end. I think of this series of Get Me Another. Now we've ho- we hope you've enjoyed taking this journey through the films directly inspired by Batman. As I mentioned at the top of the show, we will be returning the first week of May with a brand new series of episodes that will explore the movies that followed in the wake of Star Wars. And that means we're going to be talking about films ranging from The Black Hole to Flash Gordon, from Krull to The Last Starfighter, from from some foreign films that tried to, to sort of mimic what Star Wars did, uh, some indie films that tried to mimic what Star Wars did. There's, there's a whole variety of films uh, we're probably going to have. Uh, this episode, we've had five episodes of Get Me Another Batman. We're looking at eight or nine episodes for Get Me Another Star Wars. And uh, I think it's some exciting days ahead. Yes, and we will be getting our first international films in this next cycle. Yes. Um, in particular, in, in the first episode, we will be uh, a Japanese film that very much was uh, an attempt to kind of uh, do Star Wars. And, and it's called Message from Space. And it is uh, it is bananas. It is absolutely bananas uh, and in a wonderful way. And uh, yeah. Uh, thank you so much for listening. We are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorges. If you've enjoyed our show, please consider subscribing, following us on Twitter and Instagram at Get Me Another Pod, and join us in a few weeks as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, Get Me Another.